Welcome to a very, very special episode of the European VC. We know we often say that, but this time it's true. We've long been wanting to democratize access to invest into European VC. And this episode marks the true beginnings of this, because this ain't just an ordinary episode. This is the inaugural launch episode of the EU VC Investment Club, where we're bringing everyone in our beautiful ecosystem together around backing emerging managers. Today, we're featuring the first emerging manager that we're going to be smashing our personal piggy banks to support and bet on. You've met him before, Ines Huli, founding and managing partner of 500 Global Istanbul. Sign up to the emergingvc.substack.com, our newsletter giving you access to invest with the hottest emerging VCs in Europe, at tickets as low as €5,000. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs are in Europe, and maybe even invest with them? Pre-register for our newsletter on theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Minas, welcome back to the European VC. It's so great having you here and especially in the context of the European VC Investment Club investing into a new fund. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course, of course. Before we start, I really want to take the time to just hear a bit more about you. I think we should talk just a bit about how you got into venture because everyone has that story and it's always curious to hear. Of course. I think the main question first becomes how did you get into entrepreneurship and then obviously how that transitioned um, into venture capital. While I was in Montreal in college at McGill, I was really bored. Obviously, Montreal is really cold, negative 20 degrees. I wasn't going to school that much, so I was thinking what I should do with my life. That's how I started GoodBuzz, a marketing tech company, along with a co-founder in London. I was going a lot frequently to London because my girlfriend back then and my wife now, she was living in London. So we had this London-Montreal dual life kind of an approach back then. I was with GoodBuzz for about two years. I transferred my shares to my co-founder, moved back to Turkey. I was with Rocket Internet for a while, and back then... Rocket was trying to do a horizontal e-commerce in Turkey, and I was in their branch. So Rocket Internet decides to leave Turkey. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, obviously. So I started a heating, ventilation, air conditioning company just to get by and make some money. And while doing that, I vividly remember being in eastern Turkey in a construction site and listening to Jason Calacanis for like six hours straight in the construction site. It was obvious that I didn't want to be there. So when I moved back to Istanbul, I'm still trying to get out of heating, ventilation, air conditioning and do something in the entrepreneurial world, I was like, I might as well become an angel investor. Well, what's better than an angel investor? Let's do an angel investor network, which is how we started First Seed then. The mission of First Seed was to invest in very early stage companies in Turkey who are trying to go to the US. And our main value proposition was going to be connecting them to accelerators in the US, like Y Combinator, like 500 startups, like Techstars. And that's how I met with 500. Back then, 500 was trying to expand globally I met with their team in Istanbul. They invited me to their Stanford program. I went to their Stanford program and they were about to launch their MENA fund for the Middle East. And the investment thesis for MENA should be different from Turkey. In MENA, they invest into proven business models that are executed locally by great entrepreneurs. For Turkey, that phase has gone by. Turkey had its share of initial success stories like local e-commerce giants, local food delivery giants, local payment networks, etc. The next step would have been to have companies that export technology which is how we carved out Turkey from MENA and decided to do the 500 Istanbul Fund, focusing on Turkey and Eastern Europe because the investment thesis for Eastern Europe is also pretty much similar to Turkey. Awesome, Ines. And before we deep dive into Fund 2, <laughs> I think it's always good fun to start by talking about Fund 1, 500 Istanbul Fund 1, because the results are quite interesting. Do you care to share? Of course. So our Fund 1 was tiny. Obviously, it was a pilot fund almost. So we did our first close with $5 million. And then we did the final close with $10.5 million. And with that $10.5 million, we have invested into 40 companies. We've invested about $9 million so far. I guess the correct number is 8.8. And the fair market value of that $8.8 million is $50 million. I guess the real value is 49.5, somewhere along those lines. (laughs) And the way we calculate the fair market value is always in the last round's valuation. So we don't do any discretionary upmarks. Even a company grows by 10x, we keep it at last round's valuation. And then we upmarket once there's a new primary or a secondary event. This puts us on 53% gross IRR and 4.7x gross TVPI. I think what's interesting is if you look into our IRR figure for the past five years, quarter over quarter, 
we've always been about 35% on every quarter over the past five years, which shows us a sustained portfolio growth, which is hopefully going to move forward over the next four or five years because we're still at year five and a half in fund one. We currently have 30 active companies, overall we invested into 40 companies. We had six exits, four write-offs, and we have 30 companies that are active. These companies together generate about $500 million in annual revenue and have about 3,000 people employed. Only 3% of that $500 million figure comes from Turkey and from the local market. And our portfolio in total have raised about $1.1 billion to date. We have two unicorns and hopefully we're going to have the third one this quarter. Many people would say, okay, but who did you attract that capital from? In your case, this really isn't just anyone because you've got Sequoia, GB, Bullpen, Hummingbird, Lightspeed, that kind of co-investors in the follow-on rounds. And I think that is quite fair to say it's amazing. Just speak a bit to why you believe you've had such great success in attracting these guys. Of course, I think it comes on two different pillars. So first of all, our whole investment thesis relied on the fact that these companies shouldn't stay on the Turkish value chain. And by Turkish value chain, what I mean is, having uh, Turkish investors, Turkish people working in them, Turkish revenue, Turkish Series A, Turkish Series B. No, this shouldn't be the case. So the whole investment thesis was based on the fact that we're going to find these companies in the region, plug them out of the ecosystem and put them on a different value chain and predominantly to the U.S. value chain, given that um, although we're a global brand, we're really predominantly based in the U.S. as 500. So that's one thing. And the second thing is obviously it's the entrepreneurs who did it. Our portfolio in total raised $1.1 billion. If you ask me how much of these introductions did you facilitate yourself out of that 1.1 billion, which is a question we get a lot, especially from DFIs, I think the figures are around $180 million. Although it's not that small, it's only a fraction of that 1.1 billion. And we were fortunate to back great founders who were able to raise from Google Ventures, Brookfield, Silver Lake, as you said, Sequoia, etc. And for context, Fund One started roughly six years ago, correct? Five and a half years ago, yeah. So we started deploying in August 2016. Uh yeah. Would you put some words to the team that made this happen? It's always fun to get to know who's making the machine work. <laughs> of course. So in fund one, we were a two people operation. Given that it was a small fund, we were doing everything. Myself and my partner, just the two of us doing deal sourcing, portfolio management, deal making, fundraising, investor relations, etc. We never had even one person join us. Because it was a tiny fund, we wanted to stay nimble so that we can experiment. And we experimented with a bunch of different investment theses along the way. Uh, with Fund 2, now that it's a 50 million euro vehicle, at least it's going to be a 50 million euro vehicle, we have a seven-people team. And we can deep dive into that later, but we currently have four people, one vice president, one investment manager, and two analysts. All of them do predominantly sourcing, but one of them acts as a CFO, the other one acts as a community and events manager, etc. We're hoping to grow the team to 10 people by the end of the first half of 2022 and then stay as a 10 people team until the end of the investment life cycle. A question that I think for the outsiders <laughs> from the ecosystem might be very a big question in their mind is that fund one started at a quite, let's put it, tumultuous uh, time uh, in the Turkish kind of politics ecosystem economics <laughs> scene. They're just having been a coup attempt, I believe. How does that impact your operations as a fund? How did it impact and what are your reflections also about all of that? It was interesting timing because we had all of our signatures. We were ready to do our first close. As I've said, it wasn't big. It was a $5.5 million first close for fund one. And then on Friday, the coup attempt happened. And I remember on Saturday meeting with my partner and discussing what what are we going to do? Are we actually going to have the closing under the first capital call or should we postpone everything because it's, again, chaotic times? And we just decided to move forward and said, hey, what the heck? We're just going to do the first close and the capital call. And if anyone defaults, then we'll manage along the way. No one defaulted. Everyone wired their money. And when we discussed with them back then, I guess we had like seven or eight LPs. A couple of months later, we were discussing like, how come you reacted so fast and just wired the money? They said we were still in shock. So if you did that a week later or two weeks later, the result yeah. would have been different. But it was still shocking time. And we were like, hey, we promised anyway. So they wired Obviously, Turkey recovered from that coup attempt pretty fast in every sense. I think when you look into the Turkish ecosystem from 2011 till 2019, although we had a bunch of different economic crises, geopolitical issues, etc., Turkish entrepreneurial scene gave its returns. Although the amount invested in the ecosystem has been about 50 to $100 million on an annual basis for like 10 years, it didn't grow. If you look into the number of exits, you would have seen a snowball effect there. And the exits have grown drastically from 2015 on. So although we were delivering returns on its ecosystem, we weren't able to attract capital from external sources, which is what made us believe, given that VC is becoming more and more global, all of the funds are now active globally almost, 
So being a seed stage investor in Turkey and being able to plug these companies out of the ecosystem for their series A and A's and B's would have been a great arbitrage, uh, which is obviously what happened eventually. What is, in your opinion, changing that is now allowing the ecosystem and even yourselves, obviously, to attract capital to the ecosystem in Turkey? I think first the returns, because a lot of emerging market investment thesis questions from five, ten years ago was, all right, there are companies, but what about exits? What about exits? And then exits came all around the world. And also in Turkey, we had the Nasdaq IPOs. We had four different unicorns emerging over a year. Imagine Turkey had zero unicorns for 10 years. And then in 18 months, now we're having our fifth unicorn. So I think with that global change also made a change in mindset of VCs that started to attract more and more capital into Turkey. Also, local money pools have emerged. There has been a transition from 2010 till 2014. A lot of the capital in the VC ecosystem also for seed stage was global coming into Turkey because there were no local funds. And then from 2014 till 2019, there has been a transition where local funds emerged while global seed stage funds stopped almost doing investments in Turkey. So we took over and now we're able to grow. We have probably 25 or 30 different funds that are active in Turkey out of which I guess the total assets under management would be about a billion dollars, I guess. I haven't added them. We should maybe. That wasn't the case over the past 10 years. So now we have more than a thousand companies that can actually attract funding emerge from Turkey. So I think this, I mean, it's a global shift. It's not for Turkey, but given that we have talent, we have engineers that we can come to that later, it is happening and it was going to happen eventually anyways. This speaks to a point that whatever happens in emerging markets on the macro level and in the political scene, entrepreneurs are resilient. And if you're an investor that has access to the best deals, then it doesn't matter much what's happening around them. And I think you've also spoken to how this has happened in Ukraine. Ukraine and the rest of the Eastern European hemisphere is also something that is, of course, super important. I think you're dedicating a 30% or 35% of fund to, to to that geography. So I do think let's talk a bit about that. Of course. First of all, I agree with what you said. I mean, Ukraine is a good example. They have been in war with Russia for I don't know how many years, maybe seven years, but they were able to have unicorns, have more funding coming to the ecosystem, etc. Another good example would be Belarus and its geopolitical issues and how many companies that emerge from Belarus these days, or a more Asian example would be Pakistan. Um, Pakistan ecosystem is booming for the past two or three years. I mean, they actually started to create unicorns, have more funding, CSB funding coming to the country. And obviously they have a lot of issues politically, but I think this is irrelevant to the entrepreneurial. It has to be irrelevant to the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So there are a lot of regions in the world, right? Like Latam is one big region. You can start in Mexico, grow in Latam, start in Brazil, grow in Latam. There's a playbook there. A lot of companies have executed on that. Southeast Asia, similar story. You can start in Singapore, grow to Malaysia, Indonesia, vice versa. A lot of companies executed. MENA became like that, I guess, like four or five years ago. And you have a lot of e-commerce companies or companies like Kareem that grow from UAE to Egypt, Saudi, and become a regional success story. And the reason why these companies can do that is because both from a trade perspective, also from a culture and language perspective, the countries are more fluid and they do stuff a lot more together. Not the case with Central Eastern Europe. I don't view Central Eastern Europe as one market. It's more like 15, 20 different, very fragmented markets with very different cultures. And you don't have that playbook. You don't have one company that grew from Poland to Romania to Bulgaria and then became big. No, it's not a thing, right? That's why we wanted to include Eastern Europe and Turkey in the same mandate, because all of the Eastern European ecosystems are trying to tie themselves to either the Western Europe or the US. They either want to have bridges with Berlin, London, SF, or New York, which is also the case for Turkey right now. So the playbook there, if you look into the companies that emerge from Ukraine or Romania or Poland, would be more either we have to go to the Western Europe and attract customers from there, or we have to relocate to the US and then become a US company with a back office in, say, Romania or Poland. And also, if you look into the market, there's only a number of VC funds that cover the market regionally. Given that this is very fragmented and obviously a lot of VCs attract a lot of public funding, one issue has been that these countries like Bulgaria, Greece or Romania only have funds that invest locally and not throughout the region. And our goal is to become one of those regional brands with a strong bridge to the US saying that, hey, we are the only fund covering this regionally and connecting you to the US. I'd say that we have maybe, other than you, I think we have the um, ICT team. Who else? Regionally, I think the best one who, I mean, I don't want to say best, but there are two funds that are executing this along the region without a pan-European mandate, but more of a central Eastern European mandate. So I'm not counting the guys who do pan-European investments. One of them would be Credo. They have been doing that a lot, and Andre is in SF. 
The other one is Landshap out of Bulgaria. They ended up being a Bulgarian fund. They started to do this across the region. Then there are some funds from Poland who are trying to do this um, or along the region, like Market One, I guess, is a good example of that. But then I've said only a handful, right? Only like three to five funds. And they're only probably been doing this, except for crypto, maybe for the past five years max. Yeah, and I do think that when we look at how the European market has developed over the past years and see where much of the outrageous multiples have accrued to, then it is very much on the Eastern side. So it's super interesting to see what's happening on that front. One more thing on just staying here on geopolitics for a second and macroeconomics. We're in an environment right now where suddenly everyone are talking about inflation rates. I'm curious to hear, how do you think about that? And have you seen it impact your fund returns and so on? Yeah, I think all of these economic issues that countries have, and Romania had its fair share, Ukraine obviously had its fair share, and Turkey has a problem with inflation these days. It pushes more people to go into tech. It pushes more people to join startups. It pushes more people to become entrepreneurs. And we've seen that trend, especially in Central Eastern Europe, if you look into different countries, you would see that the share of technology in GDP has been grown by 20x in five years and some weird figures like that. For example, this was a figure for Ukraine back in 2019. Now we're seeing a similar thing in Turkey, I think, because of inflation and because how uh, people see that they have to earn either international currency salaries or salaries that can keep up with international currency they want to enter companies who are generating revenue from external sources. So we see a big influx of talent into startups in Turkey, which is great. And from a risk perspective, if you look into our portfolio, as I've said, only 3% of the fund revenue comes from Turkey in Turkish lira, right? But if you look into the um, employment rate, we have about 3,300 people employed in our portfolio companies. More than half of them are based in Turkey. And we see some companies like Carbon Health, which is one of our unicorns, or Insider, our second unicorn, aggressively growing their Turkey offices, and they want to push for that more. Firefly is also a good example. Firefly raised about $120 million from Google Ventures, and over the past two years, they've been aggressively growing their Turkey office. If you speak with the founders, they're not going to say it's because of cost reasons. No, that's not the first reason. The first reason becomes access to talent, because these companies don't have a problem with affordability. They have a problem with access to talent. And in Turkey, they feel like they can access to talent because of the lower competition compared to elsewhere. That's the main reason. Second reason is talent retention. They want to be able to hold on to that talent for five years, 10 years, which they can't elsewhere. In Turkey, they can. And then obviously the third reason becomes cost. But I think cost is less relevant. It's access to talent and then talent retention. Especially for the founders, of course, it's maybe it might be less relevant. But from an investor perspective, it is quite relevant, right? Because you need to fuel the companies with less dollars and that leads to lower valuations. And that just generates uh, or, or gives you the ground for super big multiples, which is very interesting. A thesis that I have, which not, not so many people believe is, uh, but I'll just share it anyways. Let's see if it resonates with some people. <laughs> um, let's split opportunities into two categories, obvious founders or obvious opportunities, and then unobvious founders and unobvious opportunities. I feel like in ecosystems where there's a lot of capital, the gap of valuations increase drastically. Whereas while unobvious founders are trying to raise rounds at like two, three, four million dollar valuations, the obvious ones are raising their pre-seed rounds at 40 billion. There's a big gap. So it makes sense to back the unobvious founders a lot. I mean, obviously, they become successful now and then, and you would generate great returns given that big arbitrage that you just played upon. If you go into ecosystem with less capital, like Turkey, that gap shrinks. The seed stage founders go from 2.5 to maybe 1.5, but these obvious founders are going from 40 to like 7, 8. So once the obvious founders are trying to raise at 7, 8 million, whereas the unobvious ones are raising at, say, 2 million, it makes a lot of sense to bet on obvious founders. So it becomes an access question. It becomes a quantity question and an access question. Quantity question, but how many are there there? The biggest question. I think in Turkey, we have probably 8 to 10 founders per year who are obviously great. They're like top 0.1% globally. If you look into their academic background or their working experience, there's probably 8 to 10 of them per year. And do we have access to them is the second question. I think we do. I think 80% of those 8 to 10, uh, we get that deal. The other 20%, we're working on that right now. <laughs> so our investment thesis now is to back on obvious founders in this ecosystem. And you might question the fact that, oh, but isn't there a big capital influx in Turkey? Because over the past year, over the past two years, the amount invested into VC grew from like 100 million to 1.5 billion. Not the case on seed. Obviously, a lot of mega rounds happened, which inflate that number. But if you hone into seed, you would see that from seed to series A, the total amount invested in Turkey, for example, last year in 2021, has been $54 million. That's it. So as a 50 million euro fund, let's say deploying over four years, 
you can easily be the fund that's deploying 20% of that seed to Series A capital per year. I think let's just double click on the claim that you get into all those startups or top percentile founders, because that's, of course, the access question that everyone is looking at and saying, how can you get access to those and which funds actually do? So I'd love to hear you walk us through why you believe that you have that access. And, and I'd also love to put some words just because I, of course, have my own observations from looking outside in, but I'd love to hear that from you first. First of all, like if you take us out of the equation as the GPs of the fund who run it, who have access to the entrepreneurial community, we are the only global fund with a U.S. basis in the region, right? So I think that put us in a different spot from a branding perspective six years ago, and now we built on top of that. And I think the reason why we can access the best deals comes in two pillars, First is founders first approach and the other one is aggressive sourcing and to make sure that we have a founder first approach and a culture within the team and an aggressive sourcing mentality, you would see that our organization is as flat as a pancake. <laughs> it's pretty flat. I mean, everyone is almost equal, although obviously there are GPs, there's an investment committee. We have every single meeting together and everyone's voice is heard. You would see that our CFO, Esat, he's the vice president now, although he does all those CFO functions, which is like financial annual audit, quarterly financials financial due diligence as we invest into companies, et cetera, his main job is deal sourcing. Same with our community and events person, Tunia. So when you make sure that everyone knows that their sole purpose of existence, both as an individual, but also more importantly as an organization, is deal sourcing, it shifts the mentality and turns people into being an aggressive mode in terms of accessing that talent. And then the founder first approach comes in culture. I think it's also our culture being flat, being humble, being equals as a fund also relays upon how we treat the entrepreneurs if you look into the term sheets that we signed or the deals that we do, you'd see that they are plain vanilla US standard founder-friendly approach, which isn't the case in the market, unfortunately, both in Turkey, but also in Europe. And we try to shy away from that. We try to localize Y Combinator safe and Falcon Startups kiss as much as possible to Turkey, where we get no protective provisions, no veto rights. It's the founder's company. They have to decide. It has to be their call, etc. So I think those two things, being aggressive in sourcing, and then having a founder first approach and building those two pillars on the brand that we already have makes sure that we have access to the best deals in the market. I think that if you look at the founder's first point, just visiting your podcast CC mm -hmm. or your Medium blog, it's quite obvious that the resources that you're putting out there aren't necessarily in the investor's favor. So you are really educating founders at the expense of why I might say the bad actors in the VC ecosystem who are taking advantage of the fact that there's more scarcity of capital in the ecosystem and as such, they're squeezing founders. And it might seem like a really good idea in the beginning, but once the company takes off, you realize that you've done stuff that follow-on investors don't like, or you realize that you've put the founders in situations that just doesn't make them grow as they should because they keep thinking about how to manage their investor base rather than growing their company. So I do think that diving into you as an individual and as the fund from the outside it becomes very quickly apparent that there is substance behind what you're saying here. So I just wanted to add that. Now I'll, I'll let David continue. <laughs> yeah, fun part now. Let's look at fun too. <laughs> what I've been looking forward to. So maybe the best way to start is give us a quick overview. What's the thesis? What's the strategy? Tell us all about it. Sure. I think that if I had to summarize thesis in two words, it would be talent arbitrage. And it has been the case for the past six years. We said that there's a big talent arbitrage opportunity, both for entrepreneurs, but also for the fund uh, ourselves. Our main goal is to have regional powerhouses, regional companies that have their technology offices back at home, but they generate revenue either globally or from more mature technology ecosystems and technology markets like Western Europe, UK, or the US. That's the core of our thesis. But if you take that down, there has been three categories of investments that we did from Fund 1, and we're trying to pull that over to Fund 2 right now. The first category, the first pillar of that talent arbitrage thesis is companies or entrepreneurs that are based elsewhere. They're Turkish or Eastern European, and they want to have their technology offices back at home. So they are doing the arbitrage themselves, and we have to be one of their first investors. We can help them source talent better. We can be their partners here in the local grounds, which gives us good access to those founders. So that's been the first pillar. The second has been founders that are based here in Turkey or Eastern Europe. They want to expand from day one. From day one, they want to internationalize. They want to relocate, etc. We can be their enablers. Obviously, the valuations are way down because they're based here, but we are pushing for the arbitrage ourselves and the founders want to do that. For companies that are going for more blue ocean markets where they need early adapters, they need more emerged technology ecosystems with higher enterprise technology budgets, that's where the category relies upon. And the third pillar has been 
Not every company has to export to a more mature technology market. Some companies can stay local for a while, grow their product, grow their team, generate revenue, have access to better financial resources, and then expand regionally. And as you expand, after you've proven yourself in Turkey, you have to expand to countries like Turkey. You can't do Turkey and then U.S., obviously very different dynamics. So these companies in that bucket mostly expand to Eastern Europe, Middle East, Southeast Asia, and that's our third pillar. So the macro thesis on all of these three pillars is talent arbitrage, but how we facilitate that talent arbitrage differs depending on which pillar the company is. And in fund one, we had a healthy split between the three pillars. I'm looking here at a couple of, of your slides <laughs> of a presentation. And I think what's interesting is looking how that you know, macro thesis evolved from fund one to fund two, right? That's really interesting. I'm here looking at these three pillars right now, and I'm highlighting, you know, geotalent arbitrage, tech transfer, regional dominance, local winners. What are these categories exactly? And I, I'm sure you have examples of companies that even fit into these categories. That would be super interesting to share as well. Of course. So let's start with first pillar. First pillar was geotalent arbitrage. So these were founders that are based elsewhere and mostly in the U.S., but somewhat in Europe as well. And they have their technology offices in Turkey. Our big success story, Carbon Health, is a good, good example of that. They're now a $3.5 billion company. They used to be U.S. only. It was a team based in the U.S. Founder is Turkish, but they're only based in the U.S. But as they grow, they now they want to expand their software and hardware teams in Turkey. So they've been employing aggressively in Turkey over the past two years or so. Another good example of that would be Firefly, company that does auto-home advertising, putting these devices on top of Ubers or Lyfts or cabs to enable context-aware, smart, programmatic advertising for out-of-home. They raised about $120 million round led by Google Ventures. And from the start, they had their hardware team in Turkey. They were doing all their hardware manufacturing, shipping, etc. from Turkey. And then over time, Khan, the founder, decided that he also wants to have a software team in Turkey as well. And during COVID, obviously, it was difficult times for out-of-home advertising where the revenues shrink. And we saw that at one point, about 80% of the employment of the company was in Turkey. Now it's more like 60-40%. But back then, they sustained the Turkey office because it was lower cost and they wanted to develop further. They had to let go some of their U.S. staff. So we saw how that was advantageous. So Carbon Health and Fireflies are two good examples of that talent arbitrage category. The second pillar is what we call the tech transfer. So we find these companies or entrepreneurs that are locally in Turkey. They have to be international from day one. They have to go for more mature technology markets from day one. The product that they're building or the solution that they're building doesn't resonate with customers in Turkey because of the technology dynamics and the maturity of the market. So they want to get investment from us because we are a U.S. brand, we are a global brand. As they relocate to SF or New York, they want to be a part of a global community and be able to leverage that global community that 500 gives them. good example of that is a company called Vivo. Vivo is a urine strip founded by two women entrepreneurs, Gözde and Mirai. They were in Turkey. They had a lab. You know these urine strips where you urinate on them, and then depending on how the color changes, you can understand your pH levels, ketone, water levels, glucose levels, etc. There are a bunch of data that this gives you. So they wanted to digitize that process, put it on a mobile phone. You would scan a urine strip, and from that urine strip, the data is there. It would give you smart recommendations to say, hey, David, your pH level is low. Might as well eat a pineapple, or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So they had a product, and the initial go-to-market has to be the U.S., given the health expenditure, at-home diagnostics, seeing how much money goes into health and stuff like that. With Vivo, seeing how much money goes into health and wellness category in the U.S., especially from the customer adoption cycle perspective, Mina wouldn't be their market. Even Europe wouldn't be their market. So Mirai had to relocate. We invested into the company at a $1.2 million valuation. We put a 120K ticket, got 10%. Um, they recently raised a $6.5 million round led by Draper, that which gave us a good multiple. So that's a good example of how we have, we're yeah. finding these entrepreneurs and companies locally, pushing them to go to the U.S. and then raise follow-on funding in the U.S. at a much higher valuation that we entered upon, where we can see a big uptick from six to 12 months. And the third category are the regional companies. So some companies that are in more mature markets, like Insider is a good example of that, our second unicorn in the portfolio. They're a marketing tech giant now. They're huge. They have about 800 people operation in Istanbul, generating revenue from 20 different countries. But initially, if you go back like five, six years, you would see that marketing tech, a lot of competition going to the US from the get-go would be suicidal. Going to any mature <laughs> technology market would be suicidal. So your only differentiation as a company is staying local, is the fact that there's no local company that's doing that, which means you can give better support, better pricing, 
blah, 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 accommodate their needs, hyper-localization, et cetera, which is what they did. So they stayed local for a while as they matured their product, grew their revenue. And then after Turkey, they wanted to experiment with different markets. You can't go, after being successful in Turkey, you can't go to the U.S. Market dynamics are different. The fact that you were successful in Turkey means you're going to be unsuccessful in the U.S. because of that shift yeah. in dynamics. So they opened the Poland office, Russia office, UAE office, And fast forward four years, they raised from Sequoia, they raised from Riverwood Capital, now they're becoming a unicorn, and they have an 800-people operation in Istanbul and 20 other offices in 20 countries around the globe. So I think they're one of the top three in their own category. They're in top three in 15 different markets, which makes them really defensible. Sure, you can beat them in Poland. That doesn't mean you beat them. Sure, you can beat them in Kuala Lumpur. You can beat them in Tokyo. I think this is more like the pipe drive approach um, is a good analogy there. And they became that. You can beat them in some of those markets that you target, but it's impossible to beat them in the 20 markets that they currently penetrate. Yeah, yeah. I have a follow-up question more on the investment strategy side, because as you started off saying, you know, Fund One invests in 40 companies, more or less divided equally across these different pillars. What about Fund Two? What's the strategy there? Going from Fund One to Fund Two, we had some learnings which we applied, obviously. So Fund One had 40 companies. Fund Two is going to have 25 companies. So it's a bit more concentrated approach as a fund. And if you ask me how are you going to get from 40 to 25 is we're limiting the number of regional and local investments that we're going to do. So that's the biggest pillar that we're going to shrink. And out of these 25 investments, probably 18 or 19 of them would be either geotalent arbitrage or tech transfer combined. We're probably going to have like four or five regional companies and potentially one or two local companies in some verticals where the local market is big enough and being local becomes a big uh, defensible moat, well, we're going to do the investments, but only one or two investments. So probably less than 10% um, of the funds AEM is going to go there. So the biggest differentiation was that concentrated portfolio approach from fund one to fund two. I think the second biggest difference in the fund is the fact that we have 70% accommodated for follow-on funding, which wasn't the case for fund one. In fund one, although some companies were growing great, we couldn't either retain our ownership or increase our ownership because of the limited fund size. It was a $10 million vehicle. With fund two, we we're going to deploy about 65% of the fund yeah. into follow-on funding of these um, portfolios. How much was that in fund one? How much were the follow-on reserves? Did you have them? Initially, after we did the first investments, we were shooting for about 25-30% in follow-on funding and 70% first tickets. But now that we were able to recycle some capital back into the fund, given our early exits, I think we were somewhere around like 60% first tickets, 40% follow-on. But all of these follow-ons came at a much later stage than what we would have liked because of the fact that we recycled capital and then did follow-ons. It's one thing that you're not doing as many local winners slash regional champions anymore. But why is that? Is it the returns profile? I can't help but think that, as you said before, the top percentile founders, they probably aren't going out building regional companies. And since you have access to them now that your brand is as established as it is, well, then you want to focus and double down on the ones that already have their eyes set on the stars. Exactly. So I think it has more to do with deal flow and what great entrepreneurs want to do than what we think they they should do. <laughs> you look into our fund one returns, there's not that big of a difference between the regional ones and tech transfer and the geotalent arbitrage. I think the main reason why we want to limit that is because more and more, I've just seen a bunch of different economic cycles go, Uh, we see that more founders are going for global markets from day one in Turkey, which wasn't the case five, six years ago. If you asked me back in 2016, what percent of the founders want to go global from day one um, out of your deal flow, I'd probably say like 20, 30%. Now it's more like 70, 80%. But obviously this is from a quantity perspective. We see thousands of deals every day. But if you look into what top 1% or top 0.1% of the founders are doing, which is what you said, I think probably 90% of them Uh, want to be global from day one or want to export technology to more mature markets where there are higher multiples, easier follow-on funding, easier liquidity, etc. from the get-go, which is why we shifted our approach. So Ines, now I have a question that is that is for the geeky part of our audience, <laughs> because you're such a systems thinker and you excel at process. I know for one thing that you have this rule that founders, when you have the first meeting with them, it might be with an associate or something, but the second meeting is always with the GP present and you show up with a prepared mindset. And oftentimes that means a 40 page report that you share with the founders to actually give them something back for their time. Uh, and this is, of course, incredibly valuable to the founders, but also something that 
I think that the VC ecosystem owes founders to a larger extent than what we're seeing. So I'd love to hear how you go about both implementing the allocation strategy and how you pursue it in the daily workings of the fund. Again, I think this ties back to our organization structure. So as we were trying to think around organizational structure, we said, hey, everyone should do at least five deal sourcing meetings per day, which means probably doing like 20, 25 meetings as a company per day. And then if you extrapolate that to a year, it means we're probably meeting with like four or 5,000 companies on an annual basis. And to meet with four or 5,000 companies, we have to be sourcing probably 20,000 companies because you only meet with 25% of them. And our goal as GPs is to empower the rest of the team. And to empower the rest of the team, we have to show them that they have power. Whenever they want us to do a second meeting with a company, or if you want to do a second meeting, there has to be a GP present, which shows to the entrepreneur that we are serious and we're going to come to a decision fast. And I think the keyword fast or being speedy or velocity is important. One feedback that we got from founders was, A, how fast our process was. We come to a decision at maximum in three weeks, which is good. So our meetings are more like on a weekly basis. If we met with an entrepreneur today and we're bullish, we meet with them again at early next week, not four weeks from now with the presence of a GP. And then we come back to that fast. If we're investing again, we're fast. So one feedback that we got from entrepreneurs was the fact that because you were really pushy in the sense that you encouraged us actually that this can happen and that we can raise funding, even if not from you guys, from someone else. But the fact that you took this seriously made a big difference in the founder's mindset, which is something that we're trying to do. Coming back to your point about deep dives, we have four team members, except for the GPs. All of them do one deep dive per week. That means you do four deep dives per week. And a deep dive means probably like more like a 15, 20 page Word document with all the competition, market dynamics, whatever we can get from Traction, Crunchbase, Gartner Reports, etc., for us to get a better understanding. And we do that prior to having a second meeting in the presence of a GP so that the second meeting doesn't become, oh, so let me tell me about your business. How did you guys meet, et cetera, but more pinpointed questions into the market for us to better assess and qualify founders' know-how, domain expertise in the industry. And after that meeting, we share that with the founders. And the reason we share that is not to shed light, but more like, hey, like this is how a VC looks into it after doing a six or an eight-hour research. So maybe this would shed some light into VC thinking, which you can reflect into your next meetings. We were putting these mechanisms to make sure that this turns into an engine. So founders not like us because we're likable, but rather founders like us because of the mentality that we implemented and the process um, that we have, which is pretty transparent. The fact that you're looking at these three categories and you have an allocation strategy that says 18 companies in geo arbitrage and tech transfer, five in regional dominance, two in local winners. And when I know that you're such a systems thinker as you are, I'm sure that your team is very much feeling that we have this approach to it. And I'm curious to hear how you're both thinking about it inside your own head, but also what kind of processes are you implementing? Onboarding someone into the team, they should understand our investment thesis perfectly. And it's not like, oh, tech exporting companies that generate revenue from international sources. No, that's not it, right? There's a lot of different aspects to it. So I think what puts us as a fund on a different level than all the local funds is we're going for outliers. So we're actually trying to find these billion to $10 billion companies, which is how we can have a 10x fund or more. From that perspective, for all of the team to understand that, we have this list of 2,000 companies And then next to it is meet, don't meet, meet, don't meet, which is what we did about a year and a half ago. So once everyone comes, I send them that blank. I tell them about our investment thesis. Then I'm like, okay, just which ones would you meet? Don't tell me why, but which ones would you meet? And then once you compare to what we actually did over the past year and a half, we try to understand the asymmetries in our thinking. Why did you say yes? Why did I say no? Maybe the opportunity wasn't that great, but the founder was great. That's why I said yes. Why did you look into the founder? Because that's a big, I mean... That it's all about the founders, right? I mean, fuck the rest. So we try to get on the same level as a team and have the same investment thesis. And the fact that we are going for big outlier returns is why we're pushing more for the geo-talent arbitrage. I think that's more high-risk, high-return profile compared to regional powerhouses, compared to local companies, because regional or local companies have limited competition. It's easier for them to find product market fit. It's harder for them to scale that product market fit because there's that glass ceiling your only differentiation was the fact that you're local or regional and that only goes a certain way. Not the case if you're going for a more mature technology market where you can go from early adapters to early majority, etc. If you're already targeting that early majority or sometimes the late majority, then there's a cap there that you put yourself upon. So I think that ties back to the fact that we're going for outlier returns. Not the case with all the funds in the region. I mean, some funds who are also investing into companies that have revenue from international sources, not local revenue, et cetera, they want to have 
lower downside, lower upside kind of an approach, limiting their risk profile, which is why they invest into categories where there are multiple winners, 20 companies have already emerged, easier to find product market fit. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. So we're trying to align the team on the fact that is this an outlier return potential? And that's where the asymmetry, I think, tougher to get away from that asymmetry the most. I want to come back to um, the investment strategy, if you don't mind, just for a second here, because I just want to make sure that it was super clear to our listeners here. We broke it down in, in three pillars. And typically, that's not how we hear it broken down. We hear it broken down on stages, we hear it broken down on uh, verticals or whatever, right? That's that's a traditional approach. So just to make sure that it's clear for our listeners, I would ask you to clarify, you know, what types of tickets are we talking about in terms of size, what stage, how agnostic are you, what does that mean, yeah. et cetera. <laughs> that's the easy part. Uh, <laughs> so um, we're going to do 25 investments out of fund two. We'll be investing about 500K per company. And we are going to be leading about 70% of these rounds, which are 500K to a million tickets if you lead them. And this puts us on a pre-seed to seed level with some of the great, great entrepreneurs. It's more pre-seed idea stage because they're top, top founders. And then in some categories where we want to see a bit more, it would be seed, but never after that, which was also the case from fund one. So comparing fund one to fund two from a portfolio structuring perspective, same types of companies, same stages. It's just that our ticket size grew by two, three X. Because we want to grow our ownership from like three to five percent to ten to fifteen percent ownership in fund two, but I don't see any risks in our first initial investments. That's what we did for the past five years in fund one, anyways. After investing into twenty-five companies, about five hundred k in average ticket sizes, we're going to do twelve follow-ons in their post-seed rounds at about one point five to two million euros. We don't want to lead any of these post-seed rounds. I think half of these post-seed follow-ons will just be chipping in, putting our prorata, trying to retain our ownership. Another half will perhaps be putting more than our prorata, increasing our ownership, however, not leading the round. And that's the thesis. And then we're going to have six other follow-ons that are going to be the second follow-ons into these 12 companies, which we already did one follow-on, another 2 million euro ticket. These six tickets are only going to be proratas, hopefully. So from a returns profile perspective, we're hoping to do 25 investments, as I've said, 500k in average. We're hoping that 15 to 17 of these companies are going to get to the next level out of which we'll be putting significant capital into 12 of them. So out of these 15, 17, where we invested follow-on in 12 of them, probably eight of them are going to get to the next level, where we're going to have another six tickets to invest. And from that eight, about four of them are going to get to Series C, which is where we generate all of our returns. We're hoping to have four companies at Series C. And if you look into, again, our financial model, if we do 25 investments, we feel like 15 of them are going to fail. We're going to have like six companies that return somewhat. And then we're going to have four companies. Four of them are valued above 100 million and two of them are valued above 250 million that are going to be fund returners, each of them. You might be thinking like 100 million, 250 million isn't that very low, but that's deliberate, right? The fact that we're investing into these companies at an average of three to five million valuation means that we can get a fund returner at 100 or 250. So although we're shooting for Decacorns to have a 10, 15x fund, we don't need Decacorns to do a 4 or 5x fund. Yeah, just to clarify, that graduation rate that you just talked about of the companies going from stage to stage, that is very much informed by what happened in Fund 1, I imagine, correct? Yeah, it's even more conservative than Fund 1. In Fund 1, we did 40 investments, out of which all of them were lower than a million dollars investment in seed or pre-seed yep. levels. 33 of them were able to raise more than 1 million. 14 of them were able to raise more than 5 million. So if you compare that, and we're still in year 5.5, right? I mean, there's still yeah, four yeah. and a half years to go. So obviously, as companies graduate, that ratio increases. If you compare that to what we expect for fund two, you'd see that we're still conservative. I think fund one uh, being at year five and a half, now having our third unicorn is going to put us at 6x gross TVPI, which is higher than what we shooted for initially for the whole fund life cycle. So we're already yeah. there. I think fund one can become 10x, 12x, I don't know, fund, depending on how the market performs. But again, we want to have the same expectations for fund two and say, hey, we're going to do 4.5x in returns. Hopefully we'll yeah. overperform again, but we'll see. And maybe a similar question on the follow-on strategy you were talking about, because as you said, on fund one initially you had planned to do less, you were able to do more follow-ons than initially you had allocated for that. Is fund two follow-on strategy similar to what you've been doing on fund one? What more flexibility do you have? What are you doing that's new? What are you doing that it's more or less actually the same thing? It is the riskiest part of fund two. So I'll tell you the stuff <laughs> the same, then I'm going to tell you the riskiest part of fund two, where the risk lies. 
So the initial tickets, as I've said, is going to be almost the same as what we did in fund one. So from portfolio construction, doing 25 investments, 500K each, I don't see any risk there. That's fine. Yeah. And then in follow-ons, we're going to do 12 follow-ons, six of which are just going to be pro rata. The other six is where we almost co-lead around, which is where the whole risk lies upon. The second follow-on investments, six of them at two million each, again, pro rata only, so no risk there either. Again, same strategy with uh, what we did in fund one. So the whole risk, I think the biggest risk in that fund, in a 50 million euro fund that we have, is this six follow-on tickets where we're putting more than our pro rata we're putting about 2 million each. So that's about 12 million euros almost. If you look into the financial model, the correct figure would be probably 10 million euros because it's 1.5 to 2. Yeah. So out of a 50 million euro fund, I think our riskiest bucket is that 10 million euro bucket. And to make sure that we do it well, that's why we had our third GP join the fund about a year ago, more than a year ago now. Aaron, he did private equity for five years and then he was at a series ABC firm in Turkey for five years. So to deploy larger sums of capital, having more governance and ownership rights, and doing more portfolio support is what he did as a private equity investor and as a later stage VC investor. That's why we actually want to pull him in. How do you think about then approaching the later stages and following on there? Do feel free to say more also process-wise, because I think that it's always interesting to hear how funds think about committing to teams that they already know, because that's different from doing first initial tickets. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you look into any fund, obviously these ratios can change, but there are like the top 20% overperformers and you want to invest into them, you want to preempt their rounds, etc. There are the lowest 20% where you don't want to invest into them anyways. And then there's the middle like 60% bucket. And the biggest question mark becomes what percent of that 60% are you actually going to invest in? Going back to our fund one, what we saw, some of these companies like the urine strip company that I just told you guys about, the one yeah. that raised 6.5 from Draper, after seed, until they raised from Draper, it took them three years. And in that three-year time frame, they had to raise bridge rounds. We knew that the product was great, they were performing well, but the fact that they're based in Turkey, tough to get any VC on board to a very early stage opportunity, they want to see revenue. We had to do a number of bridge rounds from different angel groups, from our own network, from our LPs, etc. So for one of the DFIs that we're working with, we plotted the different bridge rounds that we did to our portfolio companies. And then how many of them were able to raise Series A? So I have that one graph, which I can send you guys also. But there it really shows that because lack of capital in the local ecosystem and the fact that global funds don't want to invest pre-Series A and don't want to take the... This is a proximity-based business, so they don't want to do a $1 or $2 million investment being an SF fund to a Turkish company and a Turkish team. They're much more comfortable doing a $5 million investment because then it becomes a global play, but less so in pre-Series A levels. So we have this one graph where we show how these companies had to slow their growth, couldn't aggressively grow their team, had to do a bunch of bridge rounds. So one stage that should have taken one year took them three years to execute. And they were able to get to Series A. And the ones that invested in those bridge rounds, all these angels or different LPs of our funds that we pulled together, they did two to three X return going from that bridge to Series A, which is where we want to plug in our co-leading follow-on tickets. And again, as I've said, this is the riskiest part of the portfolio. But we saw that happen in Fund 1. We have identified 12 companies where we could have actually thought of co-leading their follow-on rounds, which we didn't because we didn't have the capital. And it would have been opportunistic and it would have been great, which is why we're executing it. Uh, we're just talking about some examples of Fund 1. And you, you talked about Vivo. You talked about Firefly. Completely different <laughs> areas of activity, right? And when we think about you know investment strategy and the allocation plan per kind of sector or whatever, the cash requirements are completely different. How do you guys think about that? And can you share some thoughts around that as well to clarify? First of all, like as I've said, we are agnostic, right? If you look into our fund one, we have 80% B2B SaaS. Not because we're focused on B2B SaaS, it's because I guess a lot of the great entrepreneurs from Turkey were doing B2B SaaS at the time, and that's what we ended up with. If you look into our fund two now, we did eight investments. You would see that seven of them are either ML ops, AI ML ops, or infrastructure. We're not focused on two categories. We're not an MLAI and an infrastructure fund. It just turned out to be that great entrepreneurs were doing infrastructure slash fintech infrastructure. I put them into one bucket or AI ML these days because that's what's trending. Now we see a lot of different Web3 companies emerge as well. So I think a VC has to be, VC has to be pivoting, looking for opportunities, riding trends and be more agnostic, especially if you're limited by your geography, then you have to be agnostic to make sure that you have access to the best entrepreneurs. Coming back to your question, we did 40 investments in fund one. We had seven companies that were hardware related. 
33 were more software. We had one company that does organic baby products for the UK. They manufacture in Turkey, so in the UK. Now they do about 13, 14 million pounds of annual revenue from the UK alone. It's a bamboo-based baby product. We had another company that's doing water deliveries because water is a big need. So we have this really, really agnostic approach that we want to sustain. And to be able to sustain that, that's why we're doing all these deep dives on a weekly basis. We're doing deep dives as an informative and an education exercise for us so that A, we're getting better at deep dives, but B, we're making sure that we look into four different markets and verticals on a weekly basis as a team, which increases our horizon. That's how we can do cybersecurity and health and fintech and bamboo-based baby products along the same fund. A big part of that is also our expert network. Being from 500, we have 300 different mentors and experts within the network. So we have this checklist before we invest. In that two-week time frame after we commit and before we wire the money, we make sure to do all of that. That includes customer reference calls, ex-colleagues, etc. But it also includes having at least three expert calls uh, with the founders. The expert calls are not there to qualify the market or the opportunity because I don't believe experts know that much. It's more to qualify the founder's domain expertise within the industry or the product. I'm going to go ahead and, and derail this again <laughs> with another question. It's probably my final question of the sort, so I think it's really interesting also to understand the LP profile you've been able to attract to both Fund 1 and Fund 2. And often we hear that uh, raising for Fund 2 is a nightmare because, you know, LPs from Fund 1 aren't ready to go into Fund 2. So I just... It's very interesting to hear your thoughts around the whole topic, both in terms of who are the type of constituents you've been able to attract, and then also, you know, that process of raising fund two, how has it been going so far? Our fund one was only private investors. We had 16 eventually. So it was 16 individuals or family offices that invested into our fund one. Our fund two currently has about 77 investors. <laughs> so the number grew drastically, but still it's 80% private capital. Although we have the Turkish treasury and the IFC on board, still 80% of the fund is private LP money, hence the flexible mandate. That's how we can invest in any domiciliation, any entity, as long as there's a co-founder from Central Eastern Europe or Turkey, which is like we have a list of 25 countries in our membership agreement. I think that flexible mandate is thanks to the fact that we have a private LP base. Going from fund one to fund two, we started fundraising for fund two at year three and a half, four of fund one. It was tough because we didn't have any of the unicorns back then. And when I look back, the TVPI for Fund 1 was 2.2x back then. It wasn't 4.5x, so it wasn't as overperforming. So we had to get LPs that weren't in Fund 1 who were excited at Fund 2, which is what we did. This was in the middle of COVID-19, so we were doing everything through Zoom. We did, I think, probably 60-70% of our fundraising has been through Zoom calls over the past year and a half because we raised the fund during COVID-19. But... The fact that we were able to get a lot of different LPs who weren't on Fund 1 get excited about our investment mandate to invest in Fund 2 was important so that that's how we were able to extract some of the Fund 1 LPs to invest into the fund. Our first close was small. It was a 15 million euro first close. With 15 million euro, we started to execute. We started to build out the portfolio. And back then, we only had probably 28 LPs or so in Fund 2. And now we have 75. So I think after you do first close and you start investing, and you start showing more results from Fund 1. We had our first unicorn in Q2, second unicorn in Q4, third unicorn was hopefully this quarter. Almost all the LPs from Fund 1 came in, a bunch of different LPs came in. I think over the past six, seven months, we stopped doing any outbound fundraising except for DFIs, except for bigger ticket investments. We haven't done any, but the number has been growing and growing because of the success of Fund 1 and the momentum at Fund 2. I'm a bit interested in hearing if you will or can't share any of the LPs that, you know, often carry strong signal value. I think the biggest signal value is ex-entrepreneur, ex-operator LPs, and we have 15 of them. We have the founder of VMX Zepeti, which was the biggest exit from Turkey back in 2016. They sold the company for $600 million. We have Machkolik founder Erdem, which was probably one of the biggest exits back in 2014. He sold this company for about 80 million pounds also invested into our fund too. So I think we're trying to increase that operator LP profile. And as I've said, like last night, we had the founder dinner. We're also inviting our operator LPs to the founder dinner to increase that interaction. Hopefully, we're going to end up with 25, 30 different operator LPs, and I'm trying to grow that base. And they, I think they have big, big signaling value for us. And I think that's the only signaling value that I actually value, <laughs> being able to getting endorsed by either ex-founders or current founders. I'm trying to, so as I've said, we had six exits. I'm trying to get three of these founders from our six exits to invest into our fund two as well. One of them already did. 
So that's how the snowball effect, that's the multiplier effect, that's the network effect, I think. That's how it kicks in to have more founders become LPs into the funds. And I think I think we're going to do more in that sense. But going back to the LP profile, we have 15 entrepreneurial LPs. Hopefully that number is going to grow to 25. We have five banks that invested. We have two DFIs, Turkish Treasury and the IFC, which shows signaling value in terms of like governance, audits, everything's done structurally well, whether that's tax or regulatory requirements in the Netherlands, etc. We have 45 or so family offices or high net worth individuals that also invested. Being a VC nerd, <laughs> I'd say that I also like the fact that there are at least, I know, one fund of fund player that I really... Ah, uh, yeah, I, I even forgot to mention that. Arton invested <laughs> multiple capital. Um, and I value, I value multiple capital a lot. I think we have to have more VC to VC interaction and fund of funds are really fueling that, especially private fund of funds. And there aren't many of them, unfortunately, are really fueling that. We also had three GPs of a fund in Europe invest into our fund in the, back in first close. And uh, with the European VC Investment Club coming in, I am 100% sure that that 25 operator LP uh, number will boom drastically, even though the tickets will be smaller than the ones you've raised from so far. I'm looking very much forward to bringing in our community into your fund. It's going to be super cool to see. Likewise. So, Ines, I think that on this note, let's jump to the quick fire. You know how we do this. We love to end the episodes with it. It's quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? I'm not ready, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question, it's something that every fund of fund will ask. Why does the world need your firm? The world needs entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs need capital and even more so in Turkey. Entrepreneurs in Turkey need better connections internationally to grow their businesses which is what we're doing. I wish 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, entrepreneurs' need of access to capital would be lower so the world will stop needing us. But for the time being, I think entrepreneurs, world needs entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs need funding. And to have more talented people to work on high-impact businesses, we need to be able to give that leverage, give that capital to entrepreneurs so that talent shifts towards that direction instead of getting white-collar workers in different corporates. Second question, and this is paraphrasing Joe Short, managing partner of Isomer Capital from when he was on the European VC. He said every fund manager needs to be able to answer the question, why do the very best founders, those that have 510 pitch decks thrown at them, choose you? I think that the main reason is because they want to work with us. It's the working relationship that we're going to have over this next 10 years, which rise upon trust, obviously. Trust is a two-way street, but the fact that we go give control to them, it's more like marriage. So they want to get married to us. I can't say, oh, we add a lot of value. We have an HR person internally. Of course we do. Uh, we have a growth person in- internally, which is going to help with their growth. We do a lot of downstream capital introductions, blah, blah, blah. But if you're not doing any of that, you're not doing your job as a VC fund anyway. So that's stuff that everyone either are doing or has to do. Otherwise, they're going to be out of business soon. Um, I think the main reason why they choose us is because they want to form that 10-year relationship with us. They see that there's trust and that we can sustain this not for 10 years, but potentially for 50 years going forward. And that's the kind of culture that we're trying to set. I think that value, the fact that you can give that trust and sustainable relationship to the founder, they really value that. And they don't see that in the VCs that turn this into a transactional business. We're trying to take this away from being a transactional business and more of a partnership, which is just an approach and a culture difference. But I think there's a snowball branding effect that revolves around that. And now the same question, but directed at LPs. God knows that there are many VCs raising capital these days. So the question is, why does LPs pick you? The answer to that is LPs should pick the VC that has the best access to the best entrepreneurs, obviously. So the question becomes, I feel like how many GPs are out there where if they stopped working for a couple months and then they came back, they would open their emails and they would see great deals come into them. They would see that founders actually want to raise from them. So it's not like your associate, your investment manager, your analyst is doing outbound deal sourcing to generate a funnel. More so the high quality deals actually come to you as a GP. That's what we're trying to do as the three GPs of the fund. Our main goal is to be always in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, do events, be active and make sure that you as a person have access to the best entrepreneurs out there, which becomes a good and a healthy competition within the team, but makes you more defensible both as a firm and as a GP. So if you believe that, the GP that you're backing personally or as three GPs that you're backing both personally have access to the best deals, that's the fund that you have to invest. If you feel like those people, the GPs that you're backing are a bit away from the ecosystem, they don't know what the entrepreneurial community is doing, but they have a team 
who's doing sourcing and they see thousands of deals every year. I don't think that's the GP that you should be backing. Ines, I want to thank you for your time. And I want to say that we're very excited that the UVC Investment Club is going to be working with you with 500 Istanbul. That's really fun. We love you. And thank you for being here and hope to talk to you soon again. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited as well. Being part of a bigger community, making sure that we can share deals, have a better network access, get access to different VCs all around Europe is, I think, very exciting, which is something that we're trying to do as a fund. We're trying to shift more and more towards Western Europe. We're going from a Central Eastern and a Turkish European fund. Obviously, we're going to be doing deals in Central Eastern Europe and Turkey, but we have to build stronger connections with Western Europe and the UK. That's why I really value this relationship. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.